Today, we begin a brand new series on marriage. It's called Revive. And we do this every year kind of leading up to our Revive Marriage Conference. And, and that word revive, it comes from the word revival. And if you've been in church world very long, you've probably heard that word revival. Here, here's what it means. It means to restore new life to. Revival means to restore new strength. It means to take something that is dead or dying and bring new life into that thing. Uh, for instance, when someone dies, and uh, they either by medical means or supernatural means have life restored un back into them, we say that they have been revived, right? They lost life, but then they had life restored. Unfortunately, I, I think there's a lot of marriages that are kind of on life support, that, that need to have new life breathed back into them. They have the need of restoration, the, the need of new power, a new purpose restored into that marriage. There's a lot of marriages that are in need of revival. And I understand anytime we start diving into a topic like marriage, there can be some that says, well, this doesn't have much to do with me, or oh man, here we go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave out of here feeling pretty guilty. And look, the purpose of this series is not to shame anyone. There's no condemnation here, but it's important for us as a body of Christ to understand the theology of some things. Marriage is ordained by God. It was a gift given to us by God. Why did he do that? To make us happy? To make us feel somehow fulfilled? Well, that's a part of it, but it's a very small, very small part. There's a theology to marriage. There's something much deeper behind this idea of a man and woman coming together uh, in one union. And we need to understand that no matter what walk of life we're in, whether we're married or single, or we hope to be married one day, there's something in there. If it's in the word of God, it's important. And we need to take time to understand why have we been given the gift of marriage. And so this is an opportunity for us to continue in that growth. Now, I believe that the thing that brings revival into a marriage is not, you know, a second honeymoon. I don't believe it's 10 creative date night ideas. I, I don't even believe that it's the uh, happy wife, happy life kind of philosophy, right? I mean, some of you are like, well, it's worked for me for 30 years. You know? <laughs> but, but really, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's it. The thing that brings true revival, and I'm talking about revival to a, to a church, to believers, to an entire nation, whatever it is, and to our marriages— that kind of revival is an invasion of the Holy Spirit that takes our lives over and brings to us this brand new awareness or understanding of the holiness and the glory of God. That's revival that takes place in us. And if I was going to kind of simplify that for marriage, here's what I would say. Revival in our marriage is not about a husband and wife falling in love with one another again. It's about falling in love with Jesus Christ. That's the truth. That's where revival comes from. When we fall in love with Jesus Christ, something happens to us on the heart level, the soul level. Our hearts actually become pliable. They become moldable. This is what we call the sanctification process, where we become less like our old sinful self and more like Jesus Christ. And when we become more like Jesus Christ, when we are sanctified, then we, then we can experience this renewal. We can experience this this restoration on the heart level, we can experience revival. Amen. And let me tell you, I promise you, you'll never be a better husband than when you're pursuing Jesus Christ with all of your heart. You'll never be another wife. I mean, another wife. <laughs> wow. 
In the first service, I said, in my marriages. I referenced all my marriages. <laughs> and my wife was sitting right there. Notice she's not sitting there right now. <laughs> You'll never be a better wife than when you experience revival from the power of Jesus Christ. I want to read an adapted quote from Tim Keller. I changed it just a little for our context today, but it basically says the same thing. You'll never be a good husband or wife until you learn to be a good bride to Jesus. You see, we have to understand that marriage is a picture of something much greater than just our happiness. It's a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, where he is the bridegroom and we are the bride. You see, that's, when I talk about theology of marriage, that's what I'm talking about, something much greater than just our happiness and, and a relationship that maybe was created for my fulfillment, okay? And so that's what this message series is all about. That's what the Revived Marriage Conference is all about. It's about placing the presence, the power, and the priority of Jesus Christ in our hearts and in our lives, allowing that to transform us, to sanctify us, so we are becoming a better husband or wife or mother or father or just follower of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's how we experience true revival in any area of our life. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to begin today in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to bounce around a little bit, but Mark chapter 10 is our focal verse this morning. Now, last week, some of our pastors were talking about some of the cues and some of the, some of the signals we get from our world and from our culture about what makes a great marriage. And inevitably, when I have that kind of conversation, there, there's a certain line from a movie the movie was years ago, back in the 90s. There was this line that came out of this movie that for about a decade, it really was kind of synonymous with true love and, I don't know, that kind of ushy-gushy kind of relationships. And some of you probably already figured out the three words. That movie line was, you complete me. And I would add a four word, gross, 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 gross. <laughs> Just kidding. I say that because I push back on that idea a little bit. I always have. That one human completes another human. Uh, I've kind of looked at it from Scripture. You know, Paul said that we are completed in Christ. Christ alone, the one who is over all authority and over all rulers. And so I've kind of been uncomfortable with this notion that one human can complete another human in the way that we might see it play out in a movie. But this morning, I, I do want us to kind of take a step back from that, and I want us to look at this idea of becoming one kind of at a new angle, and I want us to look through the lens of Scripture. Uh, you know, I, and remember, part of developing a world, a biblical worldview is to look through the lens of Scripture. We take a subject like marriage, and we remove the lens of the world, we remove the lens of culture, and we choose to look at that subject only through the lens of Scripture. And there, we find the truth of that issue. We find the truth of that reality in our world, and that's how we develop a biblical worldview. And so, when it comes to being one, when it comes to being one flesh, we want to look at this through the lens of God's word to understand what it means to be completed by our spouse, or as Jesus Christ said, what it means to no longer be two, but to be one flesh. Okay, so Mark chapter 10, I'll begin reading in verse 2. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test Jesus, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And so let's kind of figure out what's going on here. Jesus is before the Pharisees, and they're really trying to set a trap 
for Jesus by asking him about divorce. This was a trick question. This was a setup, okay? And the reason it was a setup is because uh, in the mind of the Pharisees, if Jesus disagreed with their view, their understanding of divorce, which was skewed, he would be guilty of rejecting uh, the, the religious the, the religious law of that day, if he, if he uh, opposed the law, if he opposed the writings of Moses, then that was even worse. That was, that was blasphemy, and, and he would be guilty of blasphemy. And so there was really, you know, it, it looked like there was no way for Jesus to get out of this. He, he, was, he was trapped. He, he had been set up. But you know what? Jesus is smarter than this. He knows that this is a trap. And so instead of getting lured into this senseless argument, he actually redirects. He redirects the Pharisees to creation, to the Genesis story. Let me finish up in uh, verses five through eight. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, underline that, highlight that, remember that, hardness of heart. And remember that when our hearts are hard, that's when we become blinded to the truth of God. When our hearts are hard, we become blinded to the truth of God's word. And so Jesus said, your hardness of heart is why Moses wrote that commandment. Verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. So instead of arguing, instead of debating about divorce, Jesus redirects the Pharisees to the truth of God's original plan, which was the union of one man and one woman, a husband and wife that actually merge these two people together so tightly and so completely that they become like one person. They become one flesh. A man and a woman who become one flesh in the context of marriage is what sets the marriage relationship apart from any other relationship that we experience on this earth. Because of this doctrine of one flesh with our spouse, it means that our marital relationship is the most important relationship that we have apart from our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's more important than the relationship that we have with our parents. It's more important than the relationship we have with our children. It's more important than the relationship we have with any friend. And think about this. A husband does not become one flesh with his career. A wife does not become one flesh with her children. Those relationships are defined by other parameters. But Jesus said from the beginning, it was God's plan that the union between one man, one woman in the context of marriage would be defined as one flesh, one flesh. John Calvin said this about the very first marriage in history. He said, something was taken from Adam, a rib, in order that he might embrace with greater benevolence a part of himself. He now saw himself who had before been only half complete, now rendered whole in his wife. This union or this completeness that John Calvin mentions in this quote, it's the same logic that the Apostle Paul writes about in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, where he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. Why would Paul say that? Because Paul is merging, he's referencing this idea that a husband and wife literally become one in marriage. So much so that if you love your spouse, that's evidence that you love yourself also. And if that's true, then the opposite must be true. That if you don't love your spouse, there must be evidence there that you don't love yourself either. And so we're going to touch more on that in just a moment. But what I want us to do today is take a deep dive into this theology of one flesh. What does it mean to be one flesh with our spouse? What does it mean that a husband and a wife complete one another in Christ, where they're no longer two, but they're one? And I believe according to Scripture, we see several things that one flesh refers to. And the first one is this, if you're taking notes. One flesh means one body one body. Now, we're going to have to unpack this a little bit to fully understand it. Usually when we think in terms of one body, we think in terms of the church. This is the context of marriage. And to really understand this kind of oneness, we have to understand the oneness that was described in Genesis chapter 2, back in the Garden of Eden. So let me read that to you. Verses 21 through 24, Genesis chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is the oneness of becoming one body. God created Adam first, but we could say Adam was incomplete, so to speak. And and it says in Genesis chapter 2 that it was not good for man to be alone. You see, up to that point, everything had been good. God created the sun, he created the moon, and it was good. God created uh, the, the, the land and the sea, and it was good. He created the animals that would fill the earth, and it was good. He created man, and it was very good. But the one thing that was not good was that man was alone. And so God created a helper suitable for Adam, and he created her from his own body, from his rib. And that's why Adam said to Eve, this is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. You see, when a man and woman come together in marriage, they are interwoven so tightly, they become like one body. And this is never more true than when a husband and wife enjoy sexual intimacy with one another. In that moment, two bodies join together in such intimacy that they literally become one flesh. That's why the act of intimacy was clearly designed between one man and one woman in the context of a marriage relationship because it glorifies the God of creation who sent his only son to die for and unify the one body of Jesus Christ. You see, our marriage is not just about us. The body of Christ is not just about us and what I receive and what I can do. Everything we do brings honor and glory and exemplifies and reflects the glory and the holiness of God. That's why we talk about marriage, not to shame people, not to make them feel guilty if their marriage didn't work out or or they've had some difficulties. It's not about that at all. It's about to understand the deeper meaning of the things that God has ordained and given to us. 
and then how we can bring revival and life into those things. And so marriage as one body is a beautiful reflection of the oneness of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the oneness of the church. And so to be one flesh, it means to be one body together, husband and wife as one. But it goes deeper than that. It goes further than that. It's also about one union, one union. For a husband or a wife to be one flesh with their spouse, it requires this supernatural interlocking, if you will, this this braiding together, this fusion where two actually do become one. And, and, and to have this union, it requires to forsake other previous unions that we've had, okay? In other words, you, you, you can't be one with your spouse over here and then be one with someone else over here. That doesn't work and it doesn't glorify the Father. But Genesis chapter 2 and Mark chapter 10 reference this union, and it references it in the context of our parents, right? Our parents. It says a man must leave who? The father and the mother and cleave. That means becoming one with his wife. So we need to understand what's happening here. As a husband and wife form one union together, they're actually forsaking another union, they're leaving another union. Their roles actually change. You see, there's a transition from being a son or a daughter to becoming a husband and wife. As this union changes, guess what? My role changes. I'm no longer just a son who now finds my leadership from my father or my mother. Now I take on the mantle of leadership, spiritual leadership, spiritual authority for my wife and for my household. I cannot remain just a son if I'm also going to be the spiritual leader of my marriage. My role must change as the union changes. That's important to understand that. One union must end so another union can begin. I do a lot of premarital counseling, meaning uh, counseling before marriage. <laughs> it's important. Um, and one of the things that I see is that this idea of leaving and cleaving is sometimes really difficult. It doesn't mean that we're, it doesn't mean we're actually forsaking our mother and father, that we're getting away from them, or we have no value, we don't see any value in that relationship anymore. But that relationship can no longer be the most important relationship once we're married. We must leave that union is really what we're leaving. We're leaving, we're transitioning to this new union and we're cleaving as one to our wife. This is something that we must understand. The marriage union begins a whole new head and body relationship. This is the theology of marriage. This is important to understand. And the writer of the book of Psalms, chapter 45, he explains this concept. He's really writing about Jesus, the coming Messiah, and his relationship with the church. But in that, we see this, this, this idea of leaving one household for the other. Listen to this. Listen to me, O royal daughter. Take to heart what I say. Forget your people and your family far away, for your royal husband delights in your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord." This is a prophetic message describing the Messiah's relationship with the church. 
However, we clearly see in this passage this idea of leaving one household and joining another to create a brand new union, a brand new relationship. And so becoming one flesh means to be, to, 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 that there's a brand new union between a husband and a wife. And so this idea of one flesh, it refers to one body, it refers to one union until death, but there's a third thing, and that's this, it refers to one promise, one promise. And anytime we see the word promise in the scriptures, it speaks to permanence. Jesus made the same point in the book of Matthew chapter 5 through 6. You're going to recognize some of these words, but I want you to see the last part of this passage in verse 6. Jesus said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave, become one with his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And listen to these words. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. This was tough because when a man and a wife divorce, it's, it's tragic because it, it's ripping something apart that was meant to be one. And I understand that there's so many who've experienced the pain of divorce, who've walked through that. And there's grace, there's mercy in that. There's there's a God who's greater than all that, and he shines his love to us. But the other day I was watching a documentary about uh, burn victims, actually. It was tough to watch. A lot of these victims have been in car accidents or house fires and, and burns on large percentages of their body. And almost all of them at one point would have to have surgery to, to graft skin onto the places that have been so severely burned. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I haven't, but it's a, it's a painful process. It's a very painful process. As they, as they put the new skin, the, the skin graft on the old tissue, they have to wrap that in gauze. They have to wrap that in bandages to keep it clean. But the problem is as the skin fuses together, it's almost as if the bandages and the gauze fuse together with that skin. And so the painful part is as those bandages have to be removed and, and to be clean, it, it tears apart from that new skin, that fusion tears and it rips it apart. And it's an excruciating process for these burn victims. And, and I thought about that. And I was like, gosh, that's, that's kind of like what divorce is. You know, it, it rips away two things that were meant to be together. That's why it's so painful. That's why the hurt doesn't just disappear overnight. And it lingers on and on and on and on. And it affects so many people because it truly is such a painful process. And that's why when Christians enter into marriage, they make these sacred vows and these sacred promises that, that unfortunately have lost their meaning over time. But, but the promises we make still mean permanence. They still mean long-term for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health till death do us part. These are sacred promises, not only made to our spouse, but made before God as well. And so becoming one flesh means to come under this one promise that we made to one another, becoming one flesh until death do us part. And so one flesh, it means to be one body, to live under one union, to live under one promise. And then the fourth thing is this, to share one love with one another. And this is what we touched on earlier. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 28 through 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife also loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I, I, I take care of myself. I mean, I don't exercise or anything like that, but <laughs> if I'm hungry, guess what I do? I make sure I feed myself. If I'm hurting, I make sure I do whatever I need to do to, to stop the hurt, stop the pain. I take care of myself pretty good. Okay, I I love myself pretty well. And that's what Paul says. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes himself. He feeds himself. He meets his own needs. He cherishes himself, not not from an arrogant standpoint, but we, we take care of ourselves best we can to sustain life, just as Christ does for the church. You see, that's why hating our spouse is really a form of self hatred. If we despise our spouse, guess what? From a biblical standpoint, we're despising ourself. When we neglect our spouse, we're neglecting ourself. When we abuse our spouse, we're abusing ourself. That was not the intentions of Jesus Christ when he was asked, what, what is the greatest commandment? Another trick question, by the way. Do you remember what Jesus said? The greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when we love our spouse, we're loving our neighbor as ourselves. This neighbor just happens to be one that we are one flesh with, under one union, living under one promise. Loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so in marriage, we embrace this oneness of love that loves the one whom we are one flesh with, but also cares for ourselves. One body, one union, one promise, one love. This is a theology of becoming one flesh. Someone once said these words to marry as a Christian is to enter into a lifetime of dying to self. Let me read that again because I want you to hear it. To marry as a Christian is to enter into a lifetime of dying to self. Now, this is an ironic statement, especially because of the fact that we're talking about revival, bringing new life into something. And and here, we just turn things where now we're talking about dying to self. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way in Galatians 2.20. I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. He said, I've been put on the cross to die with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. To make it simple, Paul basically said, death brings life. Death brings life. Isn't that what Jesus did? His death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection brought life to us who were once dead in our transgressions. Death brings life. You see, death of self accomplishes something great. It allows Christ to live in me. And when Christ is my priority, when Christ in me is my passion, it brings a revival into my soul that I can't get from anywhere else. If I want to see revival in my, in my marriage, and I'm serious about that, and maybe I've given up hope that I could ever see that, new life, revival, 
excitement, joy. If I've given up that, if, but if I long to have revival, I have to die to some things. For instance, maybe I have to die to kind of a self-centered way of living where I just want my happiness. I just want my peace. Or maybe I have to die to some, some self-seeking desires so I can remain as one, so I can remain tightly braided with the one whom God has given me to live as one flesh. In death, I find life. In death, I find revival. I also have to die to, to all the other unions in my life, all the previous unions in my life. Now, this is including the union with my parents where I'm just a, just a son, doesn't mean I forsake them or, or despise them or have nothing to do with them, but I can't be one here if I'm also still one here. I got to recognize my, my, my role has changed. I'm no longer just a son, but now the more important role is that I am a spiritual leader. I am one with my wife. I am a husband, a protector. All the other past unions must pass away. That includes parents, but that includes any relationship that could prevent me from becoming one with my spouse. We must forsake all unions. I must die to any desire that I have to break the vows or the promises I made before God and to my spouse. Those vows that really made me one flesh. And I know sometimes that there seems to be no way out and again, I'm not here to judge anyone. That's not my, my job. I'm not a judge or a jury. I'm just a, I'm just a preacher of the word. We sing a song called The Waymaker. I love that song because it tells me that God is a God who makes highways out of seas. And where there seems to be no way, he can make a way. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I understand. It doesn't mean that, that we're always, it's going to happen immediately. I, I get it. But this is who God is. This is his nature and his word. His way will never lead us to brokenness. It'll never lead us to defeat. It'll never lead us to division. He's a God of reconciliation. The gospels tell us he is. He's a God of renewal. The Old Testament prove that he is. This is a God who will always and forever bring us into reconciliation, just like we were reconciled to him through the death of Jesus Christ. But we have to die to this desire to break promises. And we must die to any attitude or emotion that would cause us to despise, hate, neglect, abuse our spouse. We're called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. In so doing, we bring honor to God. Death brings life, death brings restor restoration, death brings revival. For all of us, no matter what our situation is, no matter if we're married, have been married, hope to be married one day, no matter if we're living a single life because that's what God has called us to, there's always things that we can die to in order to truly find life and revival in Christ. I want to ask you to bow your head, close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to close together our time in prayer. And as we do, I want you to consider right now between you and God, is there anything that you need to die to? And this is not just if you're married. This is for anybody and everybody who's here and watching online. Is there anything this morning that you need to die to? A sin, an attitude, some kind of habit, something that has you locked into bondage?
Is there something that you need to die to today? And maybe you've died to it a million times before. It doesn't matter. This morning, is there something you need to die to? Pray this morning if there's some kind of selfishness or self-centeredness, an attitude that is only looking for your happiness, the Father, the, the, that you would ask the Father to help you die to that, to die to that attitude, to do as Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. If there's any old unions in your past, in your life, whether it deals with your parents or deals with the past relationship, something that you haven't released yet, something that you just, you kind of keep going back to, pray today that you would die to the old union and that you would be fully committed to your union in marriage. If you have any notion to walk away from the marriage relationship, breaking the vows and promises, pray that that would that would die inside of you and that you would have a renewed desire for restoration, for, re- for reconciliation. If you've been in a marriage and it ended and you're, you're in a new marriage, all these things apply. Pray that you would, that you would be faithful to the vows and the promises that you, that you made or that one day you'll make again. And then finally, die to any kind of neglect or any kind of hatred or any kind of bad thoughts towards your spouse. Die to those things. Die to any kind of negative thoughts towards yourself, self-image, hatred, condemnation. Ban those things in the name of Jesus Christ and die to those things now so that you can truly experience revival. Oh, Father, teach us how to die daily. Father, our greatest example is your son, Jesus, who was willing to lay down his life that we might take life up. Father, help us to die daily as a living sacrifice to take up our cross and to follow you And Father, I know that that's not always easy. I know the answers are not always simple. But Father, we do see in your word that there is a promised hope and peace and and light and revival and ultimately life for those who follow you obediently, not perfectly, because none of us are perfect and praise your name that there is grace and forgiveness and restoration. Father, help us to rise up, to walk in the newness of life. Father, wherever we find ourselves today, to be obedient. Father, to be faithful. Father, to walk in the new life that you've given us. And there, there we believe we will find true revival. Father, go with us. Keep us safe as we travel into this world. Father, may our light shine brightly for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.